Okay. Gear change as we get into this morning's passage, the final passage of our series. I wonder how many of you are in line for uh, an inheritance of any sort. I wonder how many of you are in line for an inheritance, perhaps from, from parents or, or from grandparents. I hope all the right things are going through your mind right now rather than uh, all, of, all of the wrong things. Uh, maybe you've been through the process already of receiving an inheritance. Perhaps you've discovered, what, perhaps you know what it is to discover what's in a will and to see what you've been left. Maybe you've been able to use uh, inheritance funds already to, I don't know, to buy a house or to set aside for kids uh, or to put aside for some other reason. Um, or perhaps you've not inherited money, but you've inherited items maybe, I don't know, furniture or paintings or or property, and so on and so forth. So perhaps you've known what it is, or maybe you're anticipating to know what it is to receive an inheritance someday in some form from some person. Well, towards the end of the passage we looked at last week in Romans 8, Paul, who's the author of Romans, told us a number of things. But he particularly told us that not only does the good news of Christianity announce that we've been adopted into the family of God as a son, brought into sonship, if you like, into his family, and the security and the confidence and the action that comes as a result of that. We also heard that furthermore, being adopted into a son in the Roman Empire, which of course is the context in which Paul's writing in the first century, that means that you had all the rights, you had all the rights of a natural son. You would inherit all that the natural son would inherit. And frankly, that was really why adoption took place in the first century. That was why wealthy patriarchs, even emperors, would specifically choose a male to be their legally adopted son in order that he might be the one that would carry on the family name, the family lineage, who would inherit a wealthy estate and so on. That's what adoption was for. It was to inherit a large estate. And Paul's point last week and this morning is that to be a Christian is to be an heir. It's to be one who inherits a joyous inheritance. It's to be one who inherits a joyous inheritance. So whether you're a Christian or not this morning, this is kind of, in some senses, the summary of what it is to be a Christian. It's one who, through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, is given new life in him and made a co-heir alongside him to inherit alongside him in the kingdom of God. Which therefore must beg the question... What's the inheritance? What is this joyful inheritance? What do I get when I open the will? What do I receive? What is this inheritance? What should a Christian's life be like as you step into the inheritance that Jesus has made possible? Well, Paul's going to tell us in Romans 8, verse 28 and 31. I'm going to just stay in those few verses. He's going to give us an indication as to what we've inherited. Romans 8 and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a pretty famous passage. You've probably come across it at some, at some points. And the inheritance sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Verse 28, 
For those who love God, all things work together for good. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? This sounds to me to be a pretty joyful inheritance. Basically, everything will work for the best and no one can stop us, is the summary, isn't it? That's the joyful inheritance, it seems, of the Christian. And to support that, Jesus seemed to say something similar. So in John chapter 16, one of the, uh, the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus said, or he promised, no one will take away your joyful inheritance. He said, no one can take away your joy. So is that really the case? Is that really the case, that the inheritance of the Christian is one of joy? It's a joyful inheritance. And if it is, if that is the case, then how do we explain all of the obstacles and sufferings of life? More so, how do we explain the fact that in the very same chapter, John chapter 16, Jesus, whilst also promising that no one could take away your joyful inheritance, he also promised in the same chapter, very bluntly, you will have trouble in this life. (laughs) It's one of Jesus' blunt promises. So how do we explain how those two things can go hand in hand? I want to look at three kind of aspects of what it is to have a joyful inheritance as a Christian. Our circumstances, our character, and our security. And my premise this morning is, it's only when you understand how these three fit together that you come into the fullness of the joyful inheritance that is yours in Christ. Number one, circumstances. I would suggest that all of us, if anything like me, all of us rely on our circumstances for our joy, at least to a degree, don't we? All of us rely, at least to a degree, on our circumstances as being the cause of the joy that we experience. Like, just in small ways, the weather genuinely affects the joy that I feel. It does, especially in the cricket season. Very, very important to my levels of joy. The results of the England rugby team genuinely affect my joy. I think my poor fiancé was rather shocked to discover that when England got knocked out of the Rugby World Cup, I was really grumpy. Like, put the phone down, go to bed, see you tomorrow. <laughs> really affected my joy. How can you believe that? <laughs> I relate more, more seriously. Our relationships, our productivity at work, those things, they affect my levels of joy. And we could name lots and lots of things, couldn't we? Lots of external circumstances that really do, in some ways, are the barometers of the joy that we experience. And that's not wrong. (laughs) It's not wrong. The Bible tells us that it's not wrong. We've already said that God is a loving Father. That's the way that he describes himself. He's always been Father. He didn't just become Father when he adopted us into his family. He's always been Father. A number of things about his fatherhood that tell us that it's not wrong to experience joy through circumstances. Number one, very simply, he loves to bless us. He does. He's a father that loves to bless us. He loves to see us rejoicing at the blessings of circumstances. And more so, he tells us in the New Testament, I mentioned it a few times the last few weeks, he loves us to rejoice with those who rejoice when circumstances bless them. He expects the church to be a place of rejoicing, of those who are glad for each other's circumstantial blessings whether it's a, an engagement or a birth or, a, or a, a new and better job or a breakthrough in a relationship or whatever it might be. He loves us to rejoice with those who rejoice through circumstantial blessing. Number two, our loving Father has enabled us to be fruitful and to go and bear fruit in the circumstances of life. We heard this a few weeks ago, didn't we? That by being raised with Christ to newness of life, he's done that in order to make us fruitful. He wants us to use our skills, our gifts, 
our talents, our treasure, our resources to go forth and be fruitful according to the way that he's made us and for his glory. Number three, he's a loving father who through prayer responds to change circumstances. God has ordained this relationship called prayer between us and him partly as a means by which circumstances might change. That's why I'm really encouraging us to to make a priority of being together at prayer and worship meetings on the 8th of December and this prayer and fasting week because I believe that through prayer, God will respond and change circumstances. I was reading Psalm 91 this morning and it just said very simply, or God says very simply, I am a God who when you call on me, I answer. We don't have a God who's oblivious to circumstances. Let's not get all kind of religious and, and kind of a little bit formal about it and say, oh no, I can't ask for the bl-. God loves to address circumstances through prayer. And fourthly, he loves to transform even the worst of circumstances. I'm looking around me here this morning, seeing people who know what it is to see God restore and transform even the worst of circumstances. There's people in this church and many, many other churches who will be able to say, for example, that child-parent relationships of old have been restored and transformed by a God who reverses circumstances. People who can say that broken marriages have been transformed by a God who changes circumstances. That new and better jobs have come through because God changes circumstances. That financial chaos has been solved because God changes circumstances. But what about when that story is not yours? You don't have a story necessarily of God dramatically reversing bad circumstances for good. What about if there are prayers that he, has, he is yet to answer? What about if there are decade-long prayers that he's yet to answer? You don't have the story of the bad being reversed to the good. What happens then? I would suggest to you that good or improved circumstances are a reason for joy and should be. But if they become the defining factor in our joy or the source of our joy, then I think we have a problem. Because when circumstances are not as we wish, what happens to our joy if circumstances are the defining basis of it? When bad circumstances just don't become good circumstances, what happens to our joy? Well, here's one for you. When somebody else's bad circumstances become good and yours don't, what happens to our joy? So what does Paul mean, therefore, when he says all things... God works all things together for good. What does Paul mean? Because experience tells us that he can't mean circumstances always become good. Because experience tells us they don't. And reason, if you like, logic tells us that if our joyful inheritance is dependent upon circumstances, then we've got a shaky inheritance. So what does Paul mean? Well, I want to suggest that Paul is arguing that our joyful inheritance is far more profound, far more profound than one of earthly circumstances working out well. Actually, it's to do with our character and it's to do with our security. So number two, character. I think to prove this point, the key word you've got to spot in the, in the passage is the word for. So verse 29 begins with the word for. And that means, therefore, that verse 29 is explaining verse 28. Yeah, verse 29 is explaining verse 28. Let me read them both together again. And we know, verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that the fundamental good that you inherit, the real joyful inheritance that comes to you freely in Christ is not actually God working in your circumstances, it's God working in your character. Conforming you to the image of his son. That's what Paul said. Conforming you to the image of his son. The, the kind of root word, of the, or the Greek of the root word to conform is morphe, which is where we get our word, isn't it? Metamorph and metamorphosis and so on. And Paul's saying God's ultimate will is not about your circumstances. His ultimate will is to metamorphosize, if that's even a word. Is that even a word? Okay, good. His ultimate will is to metamorphosize you into the likeness and the image of Christ. That is the true depth of the joyful inheritance that you have. He is continually making us more and more like Jesus. That's the good actually is the good of verse 28 that Paul's talking about. It's not a circumstantial good, it's a character good. He's morphing you or metamorphosizing you, which I think is this new word I've invented, into the character, the image, the likeness of Christ himself. Morphing and molding and shaping. But what does that, what does that mean? What does it mean to become like Jesus? What does it mean to become like the character of Jesus? Some of you have been following Jesus for decades and decades. Others of you much, much newer. Some of you might be sure, well, might even not be sure whether you believe in Jesus' claim to be God and to have risen from the dead like Jason prayed before. When you explore Jesus, you see the most extraordinary character. You see the most extraordinary character. I could do a whole, another, a whole series on the character of Christ. His compassion. His courage. His patience, his determination, his power, his greatness, his humility, his servant-heartedness, go on and on. And that is what God is really seeking to do, is to build you into a human being that looks like that on this earth and forever. And of course, when you become like someone, you become passionate, don't you, about the things that they're passionate about. And that is partly the joy of prayer. The more, that you, the more that you pray, the more that God begins to shape your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit into what his heart is like. And you begin to pray more and more in line with what he wants and what he desires. And that's what happens in corporate prayer meetings. We begin to touch something of the heart of God. And if you're anything like me and you've got plans and structures and visions, you bring those to the table and sometimes God just quietly puts those aside and brings his ones in place. And that's why I'm so excited about this prayer and fasting because I want us to, as a church, as individuals, to, to touch more and more of the heart and the will of God. That's what prayer can allow you to do. What does God want for this church? What does God want for this borough? What does God want for our, our partner church in Istanbul? The more you become like someone, the more that you get passionate about the things that they're passionate about and the more that you don't get distracted by the things they don't get distracted about. So God is morphing us into the character of Christ. That's the good that he works through all things. That's what God wants to do fundamentally. It's what he wants you to inherit. But then you might say, well, hang on a minute. I, I see what God's intention is, but listen, I'm not feeling too, I don't look or feel much like Christ at the moment. 
You've mentioned words, Philip, like courage and compassion. I, I don't feel like I'm resembling that or, or living that out. So how do I know that God is going to accomplish this? I can see what his intention is. I can see what's written on the inheritance in the will. But do I know it's going to actually happen to me? To me with all of my foibles and faults and insecurities and things that I struggle with? I think Paul's got a couple of things to say about that. He says it's already decided that this will happen to you. He uses the word predestined, doesn't he? He says, verse 29, it's predestined for you to be conformed to the image of the likeness of his, to the likeness of his son. Now you can get into interesting discussions about predestination. People get very, very irate and write entire books about predestination. Paul is not trying to win a theological argument here. He's trying to comfort us. He's trying to assure us. What he's saying is that this inheritance that God uh, has, has put into place for you to become like Jesus, God has decided it will be so. It's fixed. It's confirmed. He has decided that he will not only adopt you into his family, but he will form and shape and mold and metamorphosize you to be like Christ. It's a fixed decision made by God. Let me hammer the point home a bit more. Verse 30, it says that the Christian has been glorified. Doesn't it? So there's this famous uh, phrase, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's using past tense words there, which kind of makes sense to us. He's called me, he's predestined it, justification. So Paul's saying, these things happened in the past, didn't they? God made decisions before there was even time about wanting you in his family. That happened in the past. He made decisions that he would conform you to the likeness of his son. You have been justified. When you come to faith in Christ, immediately you are justified, made absolutely righteous and pure and spotless in the eyes of God. We get that. That's all happened if you're a Christian this morning. Then he also says, we've been glorified. Still past tense. But that's yet to happen, isn't it? The kind of final state, if you like, of us being fully perfected into the image of Christ, that's to come, isn't it? That happens, we get perfected more and more and more through this life and God brings us to a conclusion and we live like Christ and with Christ forever in a heaven-renewed earth. Isn't that to come? It's in the future. So why does Paul use the past tense, glorified? Same reason. He's saying it's as good as done. That's what he means. It's as good as done. God has decided to bring you to the fullness of likeness of Christ. That compassion, that courage, that patience, that power, that reliance upon God, things that you think, I, I can never going to be like Jesus in those regards. Regard. God has said, you will. I have, made, I have making sure it will happen and I've decided that it will happen. So he's okay. I know what my inheritance is to be conformed to be likeness of Jesus. I know that God's decided that it will happen. But how does it happen? How does my character get shaped into the beauty of Christ? Paul says it happens through all things. Paul says he does it through all things. That's the all things. And by that he means even the worst of things. Even the worst of things. At this point we need to be clear. And if you're not yet a Christian this morning, I want to be clear with you. The joyful inheritance that we're invited to enjoy and come into forever through Christ in God's family does not mean that more good things will happen to you. 
It's not the invitation of following Christ, of being a son of God, a co-heir alongside Christ. That's not the promise. More good things will happen to you. It's that all things will happen, including the worst of things, the same things that can happen to everyone else, including suffering. That's the all things that Paul is talking about. See, Romans 8 is fascinating in the sense that it's such a joyful, exulting, triumphant cry by Paul, and yet the language of suffering is within his joyful, triumphant cry. Verse 17, 18, he promises suffering. Verse 35 is the most sobering list a Christian could ever read of the things Paul says you can expect. Let me read them to you if it's not in front of you. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Now Paul's not trying to give an exhaustive list of every possible thing that could happen. He's saying all things, all things can happen to those who follow Christ. I would suggest that some of us I think I'd include myself in this. When we come to faith in Christ, follow him as a son of God, child of God, we can kind of at least implicitly believe that that kind of means that things will go well. My circumstances will be better. Am I the only one who kind of implicitly sort of believed that? Once I sign up to this journey of following Christ, kind of that means, doesn't it, that things are going to go better. Jesus did not suffer so that you would not suffer. He suffered so that you become more like him. God does not promise us better life circumstances. He promises us a better life. You see the difference? And of course, true life is to be found in becoming like Christ, the the most perfect human being that ever lived. That's where true life is to be found, following him, becoming like him, giving everything for him. That's where true life is to be found. God does not promise us better life circumstances. He promises us a better life. That's the promise. That's the joyful inheritance that God will use all things, even the worst of things, to mould and to shape and to bring compassion and patience and trust in God and reliance upon God and love for people more and more into our character. That's the all things that he, that he means. And so thirdly and finally, I think, therefore, the third part of our inheritance is security. Surely, the joyful inheritance of the Christian should be one of total security because my joyful inheritance is not dependent upon life circumstances. I can't control life circumstances. I can't control external circumstances. And if I'm placing my joy in those things, that gives me a shaky foundation, but I'm not. So I should know total security. My joyful inheritance is not circumstance dependent, it's God dependent. And he has said that he has fixed it, that I should be adopted into his family, a co-heir alongside Christ, to become more and more like Christ, to be made into the image of Christ forever and ever and ever. He has decided to bring it about and... He's demonstrated what needs to be done to bring it about, the death and resurrection of Christ. That gives me so much more security than to think that external circumstances that will fluctuate and change and flux are the source of my joy. And that hope is what has come through, through this series, 
as if you looked at these different gospel angles in Romans. And Paul uses a legal framework, doesn't he, often to explain the different gospel angles. I hope that you've, as you've listened to this, as you've prayed it through, as you've applied it in life group settings, caught up in podcasts, whatever, that security should be increasingly the defining nature of the Christian. I've used the word poise, haven't I, a few times. That poise is a word that I think should define us more and more. Somebody with poise has humility and confidence. Humility, because we never, ever could have earned or even bought a fraction of what Jesus has given us. We got what we didn't deserve. And we didn't get what we did deserve. And yet, it's not only humility, it's also shoulders back, chest out, chin up, confidence. I'm so secure because it's all been done for me. It's guaranteed, it's secure. Poise is more and more the posture of the Christian. Now I want to give Paul, rather fittingly I hope, the final words in our morning and in our series in a second. But let me just begin to close by reminding you of this series and of the reasons I believe we have for absolute poise and security. And they're going to come up on the screen behind me as I go through them. You might be brand new this morning, first time you heard this series. You might have heard all ten so far. I want to help you just let these different gospel angles in the first seven and a half, chap- eight chapters of Romans really get deeper and deeper in you. We've said, number one, that order in our hearts has been restored by the gospel. It allows us to say, God is God and I am not. That's right order. The gospel says that justice has been done and will be done. And it means that I can say, there is a judge and it's not me. The gospel tells me that all my guilt and shame has been removed, cleared. And so the naughty step is not for me ever again. The gospel tells me that total approval has been awarded to me. Not only is my account cleared of guilt and shame, it is fully credited with all of the approval that the Father feels for the Son. That level of approval is ours in Christ. The gospel tells me that love is guaranteed because when I see how much of an enemy I once was, then I know how loved I must be. The gospel tells us that we have a brand new identity. And so I can say in my heart, I don't need to sin anymore. That's not who I am. The gospel tells us that a new master is in town. And true freedom is the freedom to choose a good master, a faithful master. The gospel tells me that I've been won to a life of fruitfulness. I've been rescued to be fruitful with my talents, my treasure and my time. As we heard last week, the gospel tells me that I have been adopted, chosen by Father God. And as such, I know security, confidence and action. And this morning, the gospel tells me that I have a joyful inheritance. Not one based on circumstances, but based upon God's fixed decision to form me into the likeness of Christ now and forever. invite Robin and the band to to join me as we close. And later on in the the second, last part of our worship together, we're going to be sharing communion. 
which Mark will introduce uh, probably after the first song. I really would encourage you to take communion, if you're a believer this morning, with maybe one of those particular angles in mind. Maybe the one that really has spoken to you. Perhaps the one that's still to kind of get right deep into your gut. Because all of those beautiful gospel angles, specific results of the accomplished work of Christ on the, on the cross, all of those were made possible by what communion represents, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, and the fact that that broken body became new, alive again. That's happened, and it's made all of these glittering angles of the gospel possible. Permanent approval every morning, because I'm in Christ. A heart that knows what it is to be in right order. God is God, not me. A heart that can say that injustice may continue to happen, but there is a judge and he will bring it to rights, but it's not for me. A gospel that says you were chosen specifically by the eternal father to be his child as a decision that he made. Which gospel angle is the one that you need to really reflect and enjoy as you share communion? I mentioned that Paul's going to have the last word, which I think is fitting in this series because he wrote the book. (laughs) So what I'd love us to do in a second is to stand. I'm going to read the last part of Romans chapter 8 and then we're going to worship together. If you have a Bible, I'm going to read from verse 31. And you'll notice that Paul starts by saying, what then shall we say to all these things? And commentators suggest that he's referring to all that he's said so far in these eight and a half chapters. He's saying, in light of all I've told you, church in Rome, in light of all I've told you, church in Kingston, all of these glittering gospel angles of order and justice and approval and identity, because of all of this, what shall we say? How shall we respond? What does it mean? That's what he's saying. So can you stand? I'm going to read it. And then Robin will take us into worship. I want you to allow these wonderful, wonderful words to kind of soak through you. You can read it in your Bibles. You can read it on the screen. You can close your eyes if you prefer and let me read it for you. And then we'll worship this amazing God together. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or swords? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.